Good morning, everyone. It is good for us to be gathered for worship once again, is it not? Amen. Amen. Let's uh, bow our heads and uh, pray God's blessing. Lord, as my mouth speaks your praise, I would ask that you would grant me faithfulness to your word. Lord, that you would come now and be our teacher and our guide. I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would bring light where light is needed and hope where hope is needed and encouragement where encouragement is needed and perhaps correction where correction is needed. Lord, it is your pleasure to do with your word what you will, and so we pray that that would happen. And Father, help us now in this hour as we re-immerse ourselves in your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'm excited because we're starting a 13-part sermon series on the life of Abraham that, Lord willing, will take us up to summertime. We're spending such significant time on Abraham's life because Abraham is really pivotal for the entire Bible. As it says in my new dictionary of biblical theology, Abraham casts a shadow which extends across the whole Bible. Indeed. So it is good for us to spend these weeks reflecting on the life and on the story of Abraham. Now, in order to fully appreciate the start of Abraham's story, we first have to remind ourselves of what precedes, what comes before the Abraham story. So in the book of Genesis, the first man that God created was Adam. And Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. Adam rebelled against God. And this was a rebellion that led eventually to God sending a flood that wiped out almost all of humanity. The family of Noah survived that flood, but Noah too failed and fell into sin. And once again, by and by, humanity fell under the judgment of God at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. You reach the end of Genesis 11 and you wonder if God has simply had enough of his human creatures. Is this the end of the story? Has God's patience finally run out? The story of Abraham begins at the tail end of Genesis 11. The name Abram first pops up in the text at Genesis 11:26. Abram was the son of a man named Terah, and Terah was a descendant of Shem, who was one of Noah's sons. There will be a quiz on this later. <laughs> but an important point to note in the genealogy of Abraham is this. Counting from Noah's son Shem to Abram, there are ten men... And ten is important because if we count from the first man, Adam, up to Noah, there are also ten men. Adam was first. Adam was the one through whom God would spread his glory upon the earth. But Adam failed. 
Noah was tenth after Adam. Noah was purposed by God to be a second Adam. Noah was to spread the glory of God over the earth. But Noah failed. Now Abram comes, tenth after Shem, and the suggestion in the text is Abram will now be the instrument of God by which humanity will be righted and the glory of God spread across the earth. Now, what's really fascinating about Abram's family background is this. Abram comes from a family of pagan moon worshippers. The one whom God chooses to be the father of Israel, the one whom God elects to bring blessing to the nations, hails from a family of pagan moon worshippers. In Joshua 24.2, We're told that Abram's father, Terah, lived with his family beyond the Euphrates where they served gods other than Yahweh, the God of Israel. In Genesis 11.31, we are told that Terah moved his family from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans to another place called Haran. Both Ur and Haran were known centers for the worship of the moon god named Sin, capital S-I-N. So Terah is moving his family from one center of moon worship to another. And in fact, it's been argued that the very name of Abram's father, that name Terah, is connected with the Hebrew word for moon. So this was the environment that Abram grew up in. He didn't grow up attending Sunday school and attending VBS in the summer. As Victor Hamilton puts it, Abram was cradled in a world of polytheism, which is the worship of many gods, and idolatry. As Alan Ross puts it, when we see Abraham suddenly acting in faith and following the word of Yahweh, really what we're witnessing is the conversion of a pagan. And of course, all of this makes the sovereign free election of God look all the more glorious, does it not? God decided here to single out to choose a man from this idolatrous family background to be the bearer of God's salvation to the world. Amazing grace. Well, friends, just before we leave Genesis 11 and launch into Genesis 12, I want you to notice, and I hope you have your Bible open, I want you to notice one more small but very important detail that's given to us in verse 30 of Genesis 11. In that verse, we're told that Sarai, who is Abram's wife, is barren or infertile. She had no child. This little detail is very important because it's the backdrop to the promises that God will soon make to Abram. Promises that include, of course, a massive army of offspring that's supposed to come from Abram. The question we find here as we read 11.30, how can God's promise to Abram of multiple offspring be true if Abram's wife is 
barren. And so this 30th verse of chapter 11 raises a tension in the story. Abram's wife is barren. Think of it for a moment. By this point in the book of Genesis, God has sent uh, major judgments, major judgments three times at the garden and in the flood and at the Tower of Babel. Humanity had proven themselves to be bent. And a curse had been pronounced over the earth. And what was God's solution now to this very, very serious problem? God's solution was he saw an elderly couple living with their idolatrous family in the land of Babel. Abram was 10 years beyond retirement age. He was 75 years old while his wife Sarai was 65. This elderly couple were infertile with no children. And this is the couple that God chose, as Chris Wright says, to be the launch pad of God's whole mission of cosmic redemption. Now, does not God amaze us here? Only God would do this. God is a God who works power in weakness. And he's going to do that here. Well, nothing prepares us for the way that Genesis 12 opens. Suddenly, Yahweh, the Lord, speaks to Abram. And no explanation is given as to why it was Abram that God spoke to. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, Yahweh had spoken creation into being. He had spoken into darkness and creation had arisen in the opening chapter of Genesis. Now Yahweh will speak into barrenness and a new creation will arise. Through Abram and Sarai, the nation of Israel will be created. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, I imagine that if this call to Abram came during Abram's morning coffee, he would have needed an entire roll of paper towels to clean up the coffee that he just spit all over the table. What we have to reckon with here is the sheer impossibility of this call that God puts on Abram. For a man living in this ancient culture that Abram lived in, God's call here was next to impossible to follow through on. In Abram's day and in his situation, your kinship group was everything. You stayed with your family. Your family was your protection. Your family was your identity, your uh, your whole identity was wrapped up in your family. In this society, everyone cared for their elderly parents, and it was your honor to be at home to bury your parents when they died. You stuck around home, and your father's possessions and your father's land were your possessions and your land, your inheritance, and the gods of your father The gods that he worshipped were your gods. 
In the ancient Near East, a nation's gods were considered to be territorial gods. That is, the gods were thought to operate only in their national territories. So to leave his country meant leaving the gods of his father and the worship that he had been raised on. For all these reasons, the call of God to Abram in 12.1 is exceptionally difficult, not to mention, look at the text, the only roadmap that God gives Abram here, here is this, oh, by the way, you're going to the land that I will show you. <laughs> the land that I will show you. Well, Lord, can I at least have a travel brochure of this place that I'm going to, some idea of maybe just the name of the place and maybe the customs. Lord, are you there? What God was calling Abraham to here was nothing short of faith. And friends, faith sometimes demands a ruthless abandonment of the past. To use Bruce Waltke's Language. Waltke says this, Abram has to leave the consolation of familiarity and tradition far behind. Yes, trust in God now needed to take priority over the familiarity and the safety of home. Let's keep going forward in the story. Verse 2. And God says, and Abram, I will make of you a great nation. Remember 11 verse 30? Sarai was barren. Abram is 75 and Sarai is 65. They're infertile. How can God promise that a great nation will arise from Abram? God continues, and I will bless you. Now the idea of bless and blessing in Genesis has to do with fruitfulness, with abundance, with multiplication on one hand, and on the other hand, it has to do with rest in creation. Here in Genesis 12:2, it's the multiplication and fruitfulness idea that seems to be most pronounced in the context. God will ensure that life teems out of Abram that his offspring will multiply greatly and fill the earth with the glory of God, that new creation will burst forth from Sarai's barren womb. The original plan with Adam was that Adam should multiply and spread God's glory over the face of the earth. Now God continues the same plan through Abram. I will make of you a great nation... And I will bless you and make your name great. Notice that at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, the builders of the tower wanted to make a name for themselves. Genesis 11:4. But obviously that concept ran into some trouble. Here in Genesis 12:2, Abram's name will be made great by who? By God which is the only exaltation of a name that counts when God makes a person's name great. God says, I will make your name great so that you will be 
a blessing. Now, it's interesting in the original Hebrew text here, what we have at the end of the verse is called an imperative, which means that perhaps a better rendering of the end of the verse would be this, I will make your name great and be a blessing. Abram is commanded here to be a blessing. For all that God would do in grace for Abraham and toward Abram, he himself was not to sit back passively and just be a mere recipient. Abram was to go forward proactively to be a blessing to others. Verse 3, God continues, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Note especially that last part of the verse. In Abram, through Abram, all the families of the earth were to receive the blessing of God. God's blessing was to spread out over the entire earth beginning now in Abram. Friends, I can't stress enough how important these first three verses of Genesis 12 are to the entire Bible And to us who live in the year 2018, as the the Apostle Paul would say later in Galatians 3.8, this passage at the start of Genesis 12, Paul says, announces the gospel in advance. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 is the gospel in advance that God gave before the pages of the New Testament had ever been written. What could be more gospel than God pronouncing blessing, 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 and more blessing on a world that in Genesis 3 through 11 had turned its back on him? Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 is the gospel in advance. Well, let's go forward through the rest of Genesis 12. And this morning we're just telling the story here. Genesis 12, 4. This is what I call the Neil Armstrong passage of the Old Testament. I get this illustration from Gordon Wenham. When Neil Armstrong became the first human to set foot on the moon in 1969, he said famously, or at least he was supposed to say, didn't quite get it right, but what he meant to say was, That's one small step for a man, but one giant leap for mankind. Right? You've all heard that. Well, Genesis 12, 4, when we read the words, So Abram went as the Lord had told him. It should remind us of Neil Armstrong's momentous moon moment, but it's more momentous. This was one small step for Abram as he went out toward the land, but it was a giant leap for mankind. It meant that God's mission to redeem humankind was officially underway. Now notice that there's nothing here in verse 4 about Abram being up nights questioning himself, questioning the call that he'd received. There's nothing about him discussing this difficult call with his wife, Sarai. There's nothing reported here about Abram firing back arguments to God as to why this might not work. 
the 75-year-old Abram just goes, in verse 4, in obedience to the call of God. There is a blessed simplicity about Abram's obedience in this text. Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 5, And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered, and notice now, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. I would argue here that the people acquired in Haran that Abram takes with him as this group leaves now for Canaan, these are not slaves, as some have argued. Rather, because of the specific Hebrew that gets used in this verse, I want to argue that these people are proselytes. People that Abram had already shared his faith with. These folks are coming with Abram and Sarai and Lot to Canaan because they had believed in this God Yahweh that Abram had already been telling them about. As Adam had been blessed of God in Eden, so now Abram and his descendants will be blessed of God in a new Eden in the land of Canaan, which is a land that Deuteronomy 8 describes in Edenic terms. It's a land with brooks of water, fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. Canaan is a new Eden for the new Adam, Abram. When they came to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. Abram is in Canaan now, and he's at a site where the Canaanites worshipped their gods. And we notice that little statement at the end of verse 6. Notice that. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Who were the Canaanites? The Canaanites were the descendants of Canaan, who was Noah's grandson, and Noah had cursed Canaan. The Canaanites were the seed of the serpent. And according to this statement in our verse, the Canaanites were already occupying the land that God was giving to Abram. So friends, note carefully what's happened in our story so far. God promised a great nation that would arise from Abram, but Abram's wife is barren. So it would seem that the promise of people might not be fulfilled after all. And God promised land to Abram, but now the Canaanites are already in possession of the land that God had promised. So it seems that the promise of land might not be fulfilled either. Part of what the story wants us to see and digest is the fact that, listen, the fact that as Dale Ralph Davis puts it so well, he says, 
God's way, I want you to listen to this, God's way is to preface his great works with extreme difficulties. Did you hear that? God's way is to preface his great works with extreme difficulties. That's what we're being taught in the story. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram. Yahweh appeared to Abram. Get that. And said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh who had appeared to him. Now remember here, as we read this narrative carefully, remember that Abram's nephew Lot was with him on this journey. When God says here that the land will be given to Abram's offspring, it immediately rules out Lot as the inheritor of the land because Lot is Abram's nephew, not his offspring. Abram builds an altar here at Shechem in the land of Canaan. Boldly he does this. We need to see the boldness of this. Abram sets up this altar right where the Canaanites had a shrine to their gods. And in verse 8, Abram is going to build a second altar once he travels over to Bethel. What's he doing? Well, in setting up these altars, Abram is like a soldier setting foot on Normandy Beach and planting an allied flag there. In setting up these sacrificial altars to Yahweh, In the land of Canaan, Abram is reclaiming the land of Canaan for Yahweh. I love what John Calvin says here. He says this, Abram endeavored as much as in him lay to dedicate to God every part of the land to which he had access and perfumed it with the odor of his faith. Bruce Waltke calls Abram's altar-building efforts a consecration of the promised land to God. That's what's happening here. Verses 8 and 9. From Shechem, Abram moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar, second altar, to Yahweh. And notice, Abram called upon... The name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the southern desert area, the Negev. Now, friends, there are two ways here to translate this Hebrew verb. It's either that Abram called upon the name of Yahweh, as the English Standard Version has it, or it's Abram proclaimed the name of Yahweh in Canaan. Now I've weighed the arguments a little bit and I side with the translation Abram proclaimed the name of the Lord. I think that as Abram set up this altar at Bethel, he preached, that's how Martin Luther actually translated this text, he preached Yahweh's name. He proclaimed the fame of Yahweh right there in the midst of godless Canaan. Oh, there's lots of practical application here, isn't there? He preached the name of the true God in the midst of a godless land. 
Remember that apparently Abram had new proselytes with him on this journey. Abram proclaimed Yahweh's great name. He exalted the name of God right there in Canaan. Yahweh had promised to make Abram's name great, and now Abram is responding by making Yahweh's name great in Canaan. Well, friends, clearly, clearly the Abram that we meet in the first nine verses of the story in Genesis 12 is an Abram who exhibits real faith and trust in Yahweh. As he goes to the land after hearing the command of Yahweh, the Abram we meet in these first nine verses of the story is an Abram who acts as the obedient chosen instrument in the mission of God. This is the Abram who is worshipful, He sets up altars and proclaims Yahweh's name in the midst of a pagan land. How different is the Abram we encounter in the latter half of Genesis 12? Let's go to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. We talked about God prefacing his great works with extreme difficulties. Well, here's another extreme difficulty for Abram, a famine in the land. A famine, get this, in the very land that God had promised to Abram. Now, a parched, dry, unproductive land of famine would be quite an undesirable land. Abram had been promised teeming people coming from his loins, but his wife was barren. Abram had been promised land, but the Canaanites were occupying the land, and now the land was experiencing famine. The early life of faith for Abram was rather disappointing for him, was it not? Barrenness, Canaanites, famine. The commentator James McYoon says something that I think is important here. He says this. He says, Disappointments do come to those who are convinced that they are doing God's will. And such disappointments do not always have an easy explanation. Genesis encourages worshipers in such circumstances to remain strong in their faith and to maintain confidence in God's ultimate goodness, but not to expect easy answers. I think that's great. It's almost as if, with the barrenness and the Canaanites and the famine, it's almost as if that God is pushing Abraham to a place of pure dependence, pure trust, just as he uses the difficulties in our lives to push us toward a place of greater dependence and greater trust. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt. Wow. Went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abram leaves the land of Canaan now, the land that was promised to him, and he goes down to Egypt. Now, I would imagine, I've got to cut him some slack here. I imagine that this was purely a pragmatic, practical decision on the part of Abram. 
After all, Egypt had the Nile, right? So that water would not be a problem for his entourage. What we notice here, and it should give us some pause, we notice that there's no record in this verse, is there, of Abram consulting God about his decision to leave Canaan and go to Egypt. Verses 11 through 13. Oh, Abram. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now, just a note in passing here for the men in our congregation. Notice very carefully that the very first words spoken by Abram in the scriptural record are right here in verse 11. And the very first thing out of Abram's mouth in the Bible is a compliment to his wife on how beautiful she is. Men, I think there might be a lesson for us right here. This is the first thing. Thank you, Hal. This is the first thing Abram says in the story. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And then it kind of goes haywire after that. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, how do we assess this weird plan of Abram's? First of all, we need to see that What Abram is asking his wife to do here, this is important, what Abram is asking his wife to do here, to pretend that she is his sister, is actually based on a half-truth. Because according to Genesis 20, verse 12, Abram and Sarai did have the same father, but they had two different mothers. So there was a sense in which Abram and Sarai were indeed siblings, but not full-blooded siblings. And by the way, this story takes place in the days before God gave explicit laws prohibiting marriage within the family. But the point is, Abram is asking Sarai to tell a half-truth, but not the full truth. Sort of like... The serpent in the garden? Secondly, we should be asking the question here, on what was Abram basing his fear? His fear is that he will be killed. And we notice in these verses that Abram is pretty self-focused, isn't he? He wants Sarai to say that she is his sister instead of his wife, so he won't be killed. And so that it will go well with him, and so that his life might be spared. In a sense, Abram is willing to risk Sarai and whatever might happen to her for the purposes of saving his own skin, which irks us. 
But why would Abram jump to the conclusion that the Egyptians would kill him to have her? I think all we can say is that in the ancient Near Eastern world, there was precedent for killing a husband in order to acquire his desirable wife. We have to look no further than the story of David. David killed Uriah in order to have Bathsheba. So there was precedent in this ancient world for this. So Abram's fear, I think, is likely well-founded. The third thing to say here, and I think this is perhaps the most important, is this. At the end of the day, we can conclude that this scheme of Abram is both right-headed, but also very wrong-headed at the same time. It's right-headed because Abram can potentially buy some time there in Egypt if the Egyptians believe that Sarai is his sister. They won't kill him if they take him as Sarai's brother. The brother in this society would be the one to negotiate a marriage contract for his sister and her groom. Negotiations might take some time, which would allow Abram and company to be supplied in Egypt while they wait for the famine in Canaan to to end. But the scheme of Abram is also very wrong-headed. Why is it wrong-headed? It's wrong-headed because A, he's treating his wife like property, and B, he's putting God's promise of descendants at great risk, isn't he? What if Sarai was taken away from him by the Egyptians. What would happen then to God's promise of descendants? Let's go forward to verses 14 and 15. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was a haughty. (laughs) Sarai was very beautiful. Just like Abram had predicted Verse 15, and when the princes of Pharaoh, uh uh-oh, when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. Abram had not counted on this. And the woman, listen to this statement, so terse and so quick, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Abram had not counted on losing his wife like this. His scheme had banked on common Egyptians negotiating for Sarai. His plan had not banked on the most powerful man in the land simply taking Sarai without any need to negotiate. Abram's plan has backfired. Verse 16. And for Sarai's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And Abram had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Wow. So Pharaoh gifts Abram with large screen TVs, hockey tickets, and a new car because of Sarai. And every time Abram would drive that car or watch that large screen TV, he would be reminded that his wife Sarai was no longer with him. But at least he had all this stuff. 
Friends, I hope we can see here that it was because of Abram's lack of trust in God to keep him and his wife safe. It was because Abram took matters into his own hands, listen, and relied on his own ingenuity with his little scheme. It was because of Abram's foolishness that now Abram put himself in a real pickle. His wife is gone. He's not in the promised land. And God's promise of descendants is in grave jeopardy. Some of us have tried to get ourselves out of our pickles by means of deceptive schemes. This part of the Bible teaches us the folly of such an approach. But it also teaches us, now watch this, it also teaches us very blessedly this truth. And I want you to really listen carefully. What we're taught now as we go forward to verse 17 is, as Alan Ross puts it, that God graciously protects his plan through divine intervention when his people complicate it with deception. One more time. God graciously protects his plan through divine intervention when his people complicate it with deception. Watch what happens now. God overrules Abram's foolishness. The divine intervention comes in verse 17. But Yahweh, we haven't heard from him for a little bit, Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. See, God would not have Sarai birth Pharaoh's child. God would have Sarai birth Abram's child, and so God unleashes plagues on Pharaoh, probably skin diseases, and God gets Sarai out of Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh finds out that Sarai is Abram's wife and, verses 18 through 20, Pharaoh hauled Abram into his court and Pharaoh did what? He expressed his moral outrage to Abram and we need to notice here that Pharaoh looks more morally upright than Abram has through this part of Genesis 12. Pharaoh says to Abram, I don't know what tone he used here but I can imagine, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Sort of like when God had questioned Adam and Eve after they sinned and sent them away from the garden. So Pharaoh questions Abram and sends this couple out of Egypt for their deception. Now, friends, the sum total of Abram's little self-directed trip down to Egypt was that it was a complete strikeout. Strike one, he had ventured outside of the promised land. Strike two, Abram temporarily lost Sarai, his wife. Strike three, Abram was to be a blessing to the nations. But in this case, the nation of Egypt ended up afflicted with serious plagues. So Genesis 12 has shown us, hasn't it, two sides of Abram. Verses 1 through 9 presented us with a trusting, obedient, 
God-fearing Abram, a man of faith. Verses 10 through 20 showed us an Abram who fails to trust God and acts out of his own ingenuity and gets himself and his wife into real jeopardy. We began today by noting how the story of Abraham casts its shadow over the whole Bible. Now, in our remaining moments, I want to try to show you how Genesis 12 is reprised. It is repeated in the later story of Israel. And I want to try to show you the importance of Genesis 12 for the contemporary church. Listen. At the end of the book of Genesis, it's a famine in the land that causes Abraham's grandson Jacob to go down to Egypt just as a famine had caused Abram to go down to Egypt. Once Jacob and family are in Egypt, by and by the family grows, the descendants of Abraham grow and multiply until they are becoming the great nation that was promised to Abram in Genesis 12.2. In Exodus chapter 1, the teeming mass of Abraham's descendants are under the threat of death in Egypt, just as Abram had been under the threat of death in Egypt, should the Egyptians find out that he was married to Sarai. The Pharaoh of the Exodus used the descendants of Abraham. He took what was not his and held the people captive in Egypt, just as the Pharaoh of Genesis 12 had taken what was not his and taking Sarai. Eventually, God sent plagues, didn't he, on the Exodus Pharaoh that served to free his people, just as God sent plagues on the Pharaoh of Genesis 12 to free Sarai. And Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36, tell us about how the Exodus generation plundered the Egyptians when they finally left Egypt. They left Egypt with silver and gold from Egypt, just as in Genesis 12, Abram had received the riches of Egypt and had left Egypt with those riches once he got his wife back. So then the story of Israel at the Exodus is a reprised version, a relived version of the story of Abram in Genesis 12. Now remember Abram in Genesis 12, 7 and 8 setting up altars in the land of Canaan, claiming Canaan for the worship of Yahweh. In the midst of the Exodus story, God says this, All the earth is mine. Exodus 19.5 And Moses says, The earth is the Lord's. Exodus 9.29 God claims ownership of the entire earth. In the Exodus story, Abram in Genesis 12 goes from his homeland to Canaan and he plants a flag for God in Canaan. Abram sets up those altars at Shechem and Bethel. We need to see that as Abram sets up those altars in Canaan, reclaiming that land for the Lord, it is but a first step in the wider plan where the whole earth would be claimed for the Lord so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. But as we've seen today, Abram was hot in faith one minute 
and cold the next. Ultimately, like Adam before him and like Noah before him, Abraham would not succeed in bringing the superlative blessing to the whole world that God intended. For that, friends, a new Abraham was needed. A better than Abraham. Well, let me tell you about one descended from Abraham. One who, like Abraham, left his homeland, trusting fully and completely in the promise of God. Let me tell you about Jesus, the new and better Abraham, who left the comfort and security and glory of heaven to humble himself to the point of death on a cross, trusting in the promise that God would make the ends of the earth his possession. And where God had promised in Genesis 12:2 to make Abraham's name great, God bestows on Jesus the name that is above every name. Where God had commanded Abram to be a blessing in Genesis 12:2, Jesus is the one who blesses us according to Ephesians 1, he blesses us with every spiritual blessing. Jesus came as the greater than Abraham. Jesus came saying himself that Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. John 8:56. Abram set up his two altars in Canaan in Genesis 12, but Jesus is sent to reclaim the entire world for God. For God so loved what? The world that he did what? Sent Jesus Christ. The Father sent his Son to be Savior of the world. 1 John 4.14 Jesus is better than Abraham. He is infinitely greater than Abraham. And here's where it gets practical, friends. Jesus sends us. Sends his church sends the spiritual offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3.29, sends us to continue the Abrahamic mission. Go, says Jesus. Like Abraham before you, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and be a blessing in the world. Go and spread the glory of God to the nations. Plant flags for your God amidst the nations. Be on the same mission that God started in Abraham and has made supreme in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's mission to the nations has not changed. And the new and better Abraham, Jesus Christ, has commissioned us, his church, has commissioned Snowden Baptist Church to bring the blessing of Abraham to the nations. Here's your benediction. May the God of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Moses, Miriam and Aaron, give you confidence to live according to God's holy way. May Jesus the Christ give you joy and peace for all your daily tasks. May the Holy Spirit guide and protect you from sin and danger. Amen.